Hey, what's up, everybody? It's an episode of The Daily Dialectic with me, Ted Matrakis, Theodore Matrakis. Um, I haven't done one of these in a long time since the end of April, and it's now the beginning of fucking July. Good Lord, where does the time go? Um, so yeah, the last one I did at the end of April was like a 90-minute episode about Elvis and dialectics, <laughs> which uh, that was like my white whale. That was like Captain Ahab chasing Moby Dick. You know, that was like the one that I had been trying to get right for a while. Um, so that one took a lot out of me. And then I spent most of May um, working on like publishing two books. By the way, get those books if you haven't gotten them yet. Um, Underground Horizon and Another New Word. I put out the second one like 10 days after the first one, which is probably not good like marketing strategy, but um, I don't know. Um after the first one, I felt like I really knew how to do it. So I was like, oh, I'll just do another one right now. Um, so they're both good and lots of fun. Well, the second one's more fun. The first one's very serious. Um, so get those. There's a link in my bio on freaking Twitter. Um, so yeah, I spent most of May doing that. And then June, um, I was mostly just like drinking a lot. Uh, and... Oh, yeah, I'm working on a third book, so that's also what I was doing in June. Anyway, um, happy 4th of July, everyone, or 5th of July. I think I still, I was walking around tonight, I still heard some fireworks going off, so we're still in it. Um, And yesterday, I saw a black guy wearing a Larry Bird jersey, um, and I made a tweet about it, and some people didn't believe me. They thought I was making it up. I should have taken a picture of it, for God's sake. Um... But it was real. It really happened. So even in 2021, when Larry Bird hasn't played since like 1993, maybe, thereabouts, maybe 1992, thereabouts, um, people are still wearing Larry Bird stuff. Um, And yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a black guy wearing a Larry Bird jersey before. I'm sure it's happened. Um, But this is New York. So seeing a Larry Bird jersey at all is unusual. Um, I wanted to talk to the guy a little bit. I just said, like, hey, man, nice jersey. He was like, oh, thanks. And I pointed to my Red Sox hat, and he was like, oh, great. Um, Yeah, I should try to find that guy and (laughs) interview him for the podcast. Uh, Sir, would you like to be on the Daily Dialectic? Talk about the dialectics of being a black guy wearing a Larry Bird jersey. Um, So I have some thoughts about Larry Bird, of course. Um, He's going to be my new Elvis. I'm going to get very into him. Uh, 90 minute Larry Bird podcast coming up folks. Um, that would be good. I could play like clips of Larry Bird stuff. Like I played clips of Elvis songs. So I think Larry Bird is kind of the future in a very big conceptual way. Um, I see him as sort of representing the synthesis of left and right socialism or communism and fascism, um, which I think is what everyone's trying to do right now. Um, because the left has failed, the right sucks, but the left sort of needs some kind of energy and where's it going to get it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So I think Larry Bird is a socialist in a very real sense because he's from Indiana and he's aware of the history of Indiana socialism. Eugene Debs is from Indiana. There's a great picture of Larry Bird with his wife and with the great Bill Walton um, in front of the Eugene Debs house or museum or whatever it is in Indiana. Um, and yeah, I think the way Larry Bird played was kind of socialist too, 
because he was the best shooter of all time, but he was always looking to pass more than anything else. Um, and he would pass, he would like barely touch the ball. He would receive it from a teammate and then just like with his fingertips redirect it almost. So he wasn't even like catching it and holding it. Like as soon as someone passed him the ball, he was already thinking about where the ball was going to go next. And so if you actually catch the ball, that slows it down. Um, so it's almost like soccer in a way, like you're, you know, just tipping it to your teammate and keeping the momentum of the play going. Um, of course, a massive bug just flew into my apartment. And so that's going, going to distract me, but that's fine. It doesn't look too deadly. Um, so, and this makes me think of the movie Hoosiers, of course, from 1986, starring Gene Hackman as the high school basketball coach, Norman Dale. And his rule as a basketball coach is that you have to pass the ball five times before you, t- before the team takes, takes a shot. Um, and the Celtics in the 80s, when Larry Bird's playing for them, they had the best ball movement, the best passing, probably of any team ever, other than like, I don't know, the Steve Nash Suns in like 2004 or thereabouts. Um, but I think the Celtics in the 80s were better because I just think that because I'm a little biased. Um, and so, yeah, there's the very selfless aspect to it of pass first, shoot later, even though Larry Bird, again, was the best shooter of all time. He was always looking to pass. Um, And Magic Johnson was a good passer too, but his passes were like, I don't know, highlight reel passes. Like there's such a thing as a selfish pass almost. So the player Rajon Rondo, I don't know if you guys know him. um, He was always a big like pass first assist kind of guy, but he would make like I don't know, too many passes or like he would be open for a shot, but he would make a pass that's unnecessary and he should have shot because he like wanted to get his assist numbers up. And there are various players like that who like pass too much almost. So they're passing, but it's almost a selfish pass, which is this very weird kind of thing. Um, but with Larry Bird, that wasn't the case, of course, because he was perfect. Um, and one of my favorite things about Larry Bird is that even though he was probably the best shooter of all time, he, he was playing with like nine and a half fingers because he really fucked up uh, one of his fingers on his hand when he was uh, a teenager and he was hunting with his brother. He had a really bad hunting accident. Um, so like, I can't imagine him being a better shooter if he hadn't had that injury. Like maybe that made him have to, I don't know, figure out a new way to shoot or shoot in this weird way. Um, and that like that flaw almost made him better. Um, and if you look at that like famous thing of him in the three point shooting contest, he's holding up his finger and you can see it's like bent and crazy looking. Um, so that's why, because he fucked his finger up in a hunting accident when he was a teenager. Um, but it didn't stop him and it probably, I don't know, it probably made him like train more or practice more, um, because he knew that he had that crazy injury to overcome and compensate for. Um, but he had a lot of other shit to overcome as well. You know, he was white, he was playing the NBA, um, which is a black man's league. That's fine. Um, and he couldn't really jump. These are all very well-known things about Larry Bird. He wasn't very athletic. Um, so he had to make up for it by spending basically his whole life by himself in the gym, shooting fucking hoops. Um, so he could be better than everyone. And he made up for it by basically being a serial killer in terms of his, um, competitive instinct and just how hard he played and how cutthroat he was. And there are various pictures of him. If you look into his eyes, like he looks like he's a serial killer. Um, 
I mean, people have described him that way. So having all of these things to overcome made him a lot better. And he had this very idiosyncratic way of playing because, you know, he didn't go to, like, special basketball camps. He didn't really have those back then. Um, and he didn't rely on athleticism. So it was all this very unique, weird, kind of awkward style that caught people off guard and no one really knew what to do with it. Um, and I feel like that's, again, kind of dialectical. So I mentioned earlier, I think, that Larry Bird's dialectical in the sense that he's a synthesis of left and right. Um, and so, again... I think dialectics does sort of catch you off guard. It always comes out of left field and you don't really know how to respond to it. And that's sort of how he played. So yeah, I view him as being a synthesis of left and right in the sense that he was a socialist, communist, the Eugene Debs thing. He passed all the time, of course. Uh, but fascist also in the sense that he had this serial killer instinct to win by any means necessary he would fight a lot. He was the greatest trash talker in NBA history. Um, really insulting, really got under people's skin, uh, got in their heads, fucked them up. Um, and yeah, like being alone in the gym, just shooting hoops all the time. Um, to me, that seems kind of fascist. Um, and yeah, not a really nice guy, but also kind of a socialist and a team guy in a lot of ways. So very dialectical. I think. Um, and you can see how hard he trained and how hard he was practicing. Like you can see like work emanating from him. Like, like if you watch him play, like it's not an easy thing. You can tell like it's not natural, but everything did happen so quickly and smoothly and efficiently out there. So it's this again, strange kind of unified contradiction, which is what dialectics is all about. Um, of you can tell that he wouldn't have been as successful as he was if he didn't train like a crazy fascist maniac in the gym all the time. Um, but he also, you know, was moving at this higher level than everyone else. And so it did look very fast and very natural. Um, so you can imagine yourself being Larry Bird, I think, because, you know, he wasn't very athletic. He just practiced a lot. Um, and he put in more effort than anyone. But you also sort of can't relate to him because he's playing at this incredible pace and at this incredible high level. So there's another contradiction there. Um, so as I just said a few minutes ago, he's considered one of the best trash talkers of all time. And there are lots of stories about that. You can just search in YouTube like Larry Bird trash talk and you'll get all kinds of shit that comes up. Um, so he was known for that, but he was also known for restoring a kind of stature to the game and like saving the game and like re-legitimizing it in a sense. Because in the late 70s, the NBA was doing really badly. Like everyone was on cocaine. Uh, players were like smoking during halftime. They weren't really taking it seriously. The quality of play went down. Ratings went down. All that shit. Um, but then Larry Bird and Magic Johnson were drafted in, I think it's 1979, um, the same class. And this is a very well-known thing. They restored the game to massive popularity. Um, and ever since then, the NBA has been, you know, a powerhouse of a league. Um, and so even though, again, Larry Bird was this awkward player, um, talked a lot of shit, he elevated the game to this kind of, I guess, dignity or stature or... So lots of NBA historians um, 
say that Larry Bird's very much like a 1950s or 1960s player and the way he passed, the way he moved, um, in all kinds of other ways. But he was also very new in the sense of um, bringing a level of popularity to the NBA that hadn't existed before. And so he did it. He brought the NBA to this new level by going back to the 60s, kind of. So he's like taking the best parts of the historical experience of basketball and transporting it into the present. So I think that's a good example of how the past can be used to kind of reanimate or revitalize or even revolutionize the present because he was sort of a revolutionary presence in the league in a way. Um, So even though Larry Bird, he won, I think, three MVPs, three NBA finals, tons of all-star teams, the dream team, and so on, like every accomplishment you could imagine, um, he did struggle a lot. He had lots of injury problems later in his career. um, But so his second season, 1981, they won the NBA Finals. And so it seemed like he was going to just win constantly. But he didn't win another NBA Finals until 1984. So three seasons. And for him, that was a lot because he was like so far beyond every other player except Magic Johnson um, and maybe Dr. J. But Dr. J was pretty old at that point. Um, and so in 1984, they got to the Finals against the Lakers and... Um, the Lakers had way more talent, Magic Johnson, James Worthy, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and others. And the Celtics, you know, they're mostly just awkward white guys who just, like, tried really hard. Um, and so the thing about the 1984 finals is that it was super physical, and they were basically just not going to allow themselves to le- to lose because they were just going to, you know, destroy the competition physically and sort of play dirty by any means necessary, basically. Um, And then they lost in the 1985 finals to the Lakers, which was a very tough loss. And then they won in 1986. um, And then they didn't, they lost in 1987 in a very tough series against the Lakers again. And then that was basically it. And then Larry Bird kept getting injured. So he won that first one very easily in 1981. um, And then really had to just like fight his way to the 1984 one, which is a very physical, like ugly series. And then 1986 was also pretty easy because they had Bill Walton that year, um, who was a legendary player from the seventies, but he had gotten super injured for lots of years. And for, by some stroke of luck, he was uh, really healthy in 1986. So him and Larry Bird were just, you know, doing the most advanced pick and roll passing maneuvers probably ever. Um, it's like two of the best passing big men, probably the, the two best passing big men ever. Um, so if you look at highlights of Larry Bird and Bill Walton from 1986, it's fantastic. Um, so yeah, those are some other Larry Bird dialectics for you. Okay. Uh, enough about Larry Bird. Enough about the damn Larry Bird. It's burning. A couple other things I wanted to talk about. Um, I had a tweet the other day about how Jordan Peterson is the opposite of Elvis. This will be my last Elvis rant, I promise you. Um, So I don't really, I've never followed Jordan Peterson closely, of course, because I'm not a fucking retard. But as far as I understand, Jordan Peterson's main thing is that like women represent chaos and we have to have rules to defend ourselves against the chaos of women. 
I think that's it. Like his books were like the 12 rules for life or something. Um, and mostly I think what he talks about is like, oh, the vagina represents chaos, blah, blah, whatever. Um, and that's bad and we have to protect ourselves against it. And to me, Elvis, Elvis Presley, of course, um, represents the exact opposite of that. Elvis, well, they're starting from the same place, but they come to opposite conclusions. So Elvis also recognizes fully the chaos and insanity of women and of the vagina and so on. Pussy, we can call it. Um, But he doesn't think we need like rules and protection and like to, oh, it's scary. He thinks like, no, it's great. We have to, you know, (laughs) celebrate uh, the horrible chaos of women and everything they represent. Um, And that sort of gives Elvis his power. And really all of his songs, he talks about being pulled apart, being, you know, um, totally overwhelmed (laughs) by pussy. He calls it love, but, you know, it's a code word for pussy. Um, And... Yeah, it's hard and it's intense, but even though it, you know, tears him, tears his heart up and all that shit, it gives him power and it's, he's happy in all of his songs. Even though he's singing about the chaos of women, he's embracing it and affirming it. So he's affirming this negativity sort of, and this is a very Nietzschean idea. So Nietzsche is all about nihilism and negativity that's well known about Nietzsche's books. It's not like happy, fun shit to read. Um, But the main idea in Nietzsche is that he describes himself as a yes saying spirit, saying yes to everything. Um, Whereas with Schopenhauer, who's also pessimistic and nihilistic, Schopenhauer's like, oh, the world's so bad, so we have to say no to it. We have to resign ourselves and withdraw from the world, blah, blah, blah. Um, Nietzsche fully recognizes the awful pessimism and nihilism of the world, just as Schopenhauer did. But he has the opposite conclusion, that we have to affirm it and embrace it. So I guess I would say that Jordan Peterson is like Schopenhauer, and Elvis is like Nietzsche. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Um, Okay, Uh, so much for that. I think I made the main point. Um, Somebody wanted me to talk about social democracy, so I will do that. Social democracy is basically a very moderate form of socialism um, that fits very well within liberal bourgeois democracy. Social democracy is um, basically like the New Deal period, the New Deal reforms. So social democracy is moderate reform of liberal democratic capitalism. And over the last five or six years now, ever since Bernie Sanders became a household name, um, there's this idea that like, oh, new things are happening. The left is growing. Um, But it's just social democracy. And so it's not new. And it's not really radical because we've had it before in this country. It's the New Deal. And it was very mainstream. And there was a lot of politics and culture and activism and so on to the left of the New Deal. The New Deal was a compromise. Um, So social democracy is a compromise between the establishment between the capitalist class and the more radical uh, elements. And so that's all that Bernie Sanders did was to sort of reanimate the corpse of social democracy within American political discourse. 
But again, it's being talked about like, oh my God, communism, socialism, this is radical. This is crazy. This is going to change everything. Young people are fucking hardcore Marxist now. Oh my God. Um, but that's not really the case. He's Bernie was always just advocating for, you know, like Scandinavian style welfare systems that are fully compatible with, you know, the capitalist democracies that they have over there. Um, and those are imperialist countries that have gotten a lot of their wealth from imperialist um, activities. <clears throat> so Bernie wasn't a real radical. I don't think anyone still thinks he's a real radical. He was portrayed as that for a while because compared to fucking Hillary Clinton, I guess he was. Um, but again, that's why the establishment, you know, kept him around for so long. The Democrats allowed him to caucus with them for years because they knew that he wasn't a real radical and that he wasn't really going to challenge the system in a truly meaningful way. Um, so again, there's this idea that Bernie did a lot to advance the left and that the left is really powerful right now and it's on the march because of Bernie Sanders shit and so on. But all that Bernie did was mainstream social democracy, which is used against communism. So communism and social democracy are different. Social democracy is liberal capitalism with slightly better benefits for workers. Uh, communism is the working class seizing control of the bourgeois state, separating the bourgeoisie from the apparatus of the state and instituting you know, dictatorship of the proletariat, which is uh, a step towards the final goal of communism, which is the abolition of class society. So the proletariat will abolish themselves as a class too after they take control of the bourgeois apparatus of the state. Okay. Um, and so that's very, very different from social democracy. But again, the way Bernie's talked about by the right and conservatives, of course, Tucker Carlson, oh, Bernie Sanders is Karl Marx 2.0, but he's even worse. That's my Tucker Carlson impression. Um, he's talked about as being this like huge communist menace or something. Whoa. He's talked about that way by the right, but also some liberals talk about him that way. Like Joe Biden basically was like, oh, I'm not Bernie Sanders. Blah, blah. So Biden sort of triangulated himself uh, between the right and the sort of fake far left that Bernie Sanders represented. And so I think this is an example of how social democracy can be used against the left or against communism or against any kind of effort to advance the idea of communism into the future, which is what needs to happen if we want history to, you know, be something other than horrible, meaningless bullshit at some point. Um, so yeah, Bernie was used as sort of this boogeyman that Joe Biden could point to and say, oh, I'm not that and be a more stable kind of choice. Um, and that ended up working. And, you know, social democracy is all about these kind of vague promises of, oh, we're going to do Medicare for all, we're going to raise the minimum wage, we're going to do this and that, you know, these little pieces here and there um, that we're going to, little crumbs we're going to give out to the working class to make them feel better about existing under capitalism, basically. So social democracy is like a band-aid that 
capitalism puts on itself. One, when workers are getting too pissed off, um, the ruling class will periodically do social democratic reforms. And again, that's what the New Deal was. And, and the New Deal came at the end of the Great Depression, or it, it is what sort of ended the Great Depression. Um, because workers were really ready for revolution back then. Um, to some extent, they are now, although I think that moment's rapidly passing. Um, and so, you know, New Deal social democratic reforms were used to kind of stop that revolutionary moment. Um, and that period lasted for a few decades, and the standard of living was better, and it's looked back on as this, like, utopia or whatever, and we need to return to it. Um, but again, you know, it was only good because women and black people weren't really included in the reforms. And so the probably the most important New Deal reform that isn't really talked about much was, I think, passed in 1944, so close to the end of Roosevelt's life. Um, it's called the GI Bill. GI stands for Ground Infantry. So all the people who fought in World War II, they got these massive benefits. So, you know, they got like easy loans for a home, for a car, uh, college. The government basically set them up to be like solid middle-class citizens. Um, but of course, the overwhelming majority of that was to white people. So black people were pretty much left out of the GI Bill. Um, and so, you know, if there was something like the GI Bill now, I guess it could be good um, because it wouldn't just be for white people. Um, although they would probably still figure out a way to mostly make it benefit white people, let's be honest. Uh, but again, it would just be a way to like ingratiate the mass of people into the middle class. And so that's another problem with social democracy, I think, is that it's basically just raising people into the American middle class and acting like that's somehow excuse me, um, revolutionary or something that will change things. But middle class is the most, you know, status quo, reactionary, non-revolutionary category. Um, there's nothing, you know, that a middle class person wants other than things to continue the same way. So the more people that are in the middle class, the more things will stay the same. So social democracy just sort of strengthens and emboldens or, you know, makes more concrete and brings to a head um, the middle class, which is not a threat to capitalism at all. Um, capitalism wants more middle class people because then they can, you know, sell them these products, these creature comforts, you know, middle class people love buying all kinds of bullshit from that capitalism can provide. So yeah, another problem with social democracy is that it has nothing to do with long-term thinking. It's all about like, oh, we need to give workers these benefits right now in the moment and nothing else matters. Um, and so everything gets sacrificed for, oh, we have to focus on Medicare for all or the fight for $15 an hour or whatever. And of course, those are good things, but there's this idea that, okay, once we get that, then we can stop or we have achieved something. Um, and even those things, Medicare for all and the fight for $15 an hour, um, which were like the two main ideas of this recent phase of Bernie Sanders style social democracy, uh, of course, weren't <laughs> uh, on the agenda for Biden. He might have like talked about it a little bit, but he's not going to 
do any of that. Um, he did some stuff with the COVID relief bill, although people don't really know what the hell's in it. There's all kinds of stuff in there, but we know that Medicare for all and, um, the, and the $15 minimum wage weren't in it. Um, a big part of the COVID relief bill, as far as I could tell, was trying, was just trying to like roll back what Trump did and like restore Obama stuff. So, you know, Trump reduced the scope of Obamacare and the COVID relief bill that Biden did sort of restored, uh, Obama shit to what it previously was. And so I think it is the, the COVID relief bill could be viewed as a form of social democracy in that way of restoring the status quo, but making it seem like radicalism. Yeah. And so not only is there no long-term thinking, long-term thinking should be about the future, of course, and that's what communism should be about, um, strategizing for the future, how to, you know, seize control, how to have workers steal, seize control of the bourgeois state. Um, so not only is there none of that with social democracy, but it actually goes backwards and portrays that backwardsness as somehow futuristic or somehow, you know, the end of the job or whatever. Um, and so there's no future thinking to it. There's no like big picture of like a final goal that we need, which of course, again, would be working class dictatorship. Um, it's all about, we have to immediately give workers isolated benefits from the bourgeois government that we need handouts from the government because people are suffering. And yes, people are suffering. And so this is one of the sinister things about social democracy, I think, is that you can't really argue against it because people who advocate for it are very much talking about the suffering of workers and people who you know have all these health problems and they're crippled by these medical bills and we need to fix this, we need to change this right now, we can't wait. Um, and like, you can't disagree with that because people are suffering and they do need help right now. But I think the way to think about it is that, you know, if people are given these benefits or these modest increases in their standard of living in the present and in the short term, that's just, you know, further ensconcing them or ingratiating them in the system of, you know, liberal bourgeois government which is the whole problem. And so the bourgeois government is always going to, you know, drain everyone of their resources, of their health, of everything, because the bourgeoisie are fucking evil vampires. And that's why we have to separate them from the apparatus of the state. Um, yeah, I like that. And so again, doing these social de democratic reforms is how, is precisely how the liberal bourgeois government perpetuates itself and sustains itself. But again, you can't argue against it necessarily because then you're anti-worker, anti-populism, basically. Um, and so this is where populism comes in, I think. So populism is talked about a lot nowadays. And I think I've talked about populism on a previous episode. It was probably in like February or January, though. So look through the archives. Um, so I think populism is about the same sort of thing that social democracy is about, which is, you know, people are upset with the system and they want results or they want answers right now. Um, and so social democracy can do that by saying, oh, we need to give workers, we need to give everyone healthcare, universal healthcare. Um, and so that's like a left-wing populism thing, which is good, 
because who doesn't want more people to have health care for Pete's sake? Um, but a right-wing populism also gives people what they want or what they think they want um, in the moment because people are upset with the current system. And that's where someone like Trump's, Trump comes in where he blames, you know, Mexicans and Muslims and China and this and that for everyone's problems. Um, and so that's kind of like a psychopolitics version. Psychopolitics meaning, you know, the type of politics that's characterized by the last, I don't know, basically during the neoliberal period of giving people these emotional or psychological benefits or signals um, in place of real politics to make the mass of people think that something is happening. Um, and so, yeah, populism is basically the same thing as social democracy. Um, but again, there can be a left, left-wing style of populism, which is basically social democracy. Um, we need to drop everything to give workers health care or do climate change shit. Um, so a lot of the social democracy that's happening now is given over to um, climate change discourse, the Green New Deal, right? We only have eight years of climate left. Some retard was saying that on Twitter. Might have been AOC, I don't know. Um, but there's this idea that like in 2030 or something, uh, there's gonna be like a climate change bomb that goes off and everyone's house is gonna be underwater. So we have to drop everything and invest all of our money in renewable green energy or something. Uh, so that's a big part of left populism and social democracy now as well. Um, so again, it's this idea that like, oh, there's this big threat in the present and we have no time for, you know, working class dictatorship or anything that the left is supposed to be about. Um, we have to, you know, invest billions of dollars in fucking solar energy or wind energy or something called biofuel, which is cutting down trees and just using that as energy. That's considered a green resource because I guess trees <laughs> grow back and trees are green. Um, so Michael Moore did a good documentary sort of exposing the bullshit of the Green New Deal a few years ago and the left fucking crucified him because he went after, you know, one of their sacred cows, which is like, oh, the climate change bomb is going to go off soon and we have to give all of our money to these fucking creepy, you know, green energy companies. Um, and he was like, no, most, like, I think like 70% or more of renewable energy is, again, biofuel, which is just cutting down trees and <laughs> it's logging and using that as an energy source. Um, like 20% of renewable energy is solar and wind, which is also a fucking joke because, you know, this has been said a lot, but it's true that there are going to be some days when the sun's not shining as much and the wind's not blowing. And so you can't rely on solar and wind as your main energy source for the modern, you know, grids that we have set up for Pete's sake. Um, and, you know, solar panels, they're in the desert for the most part. Deserts are very dirty. Solar panels are like pieces of glass that have to be very clean. And so they're just going to get covered in dirt and then they're not going to work as well. So there's got to be some way to clean them all. Like wh whose job is that going to be? Yeah, I, I can't imagine a worse job being the guy who fucking scrubs the solar panels in the fucking desert. Um, maybe they'll have robots to do that. I don't know. Um, and I guess the robots could run on solar energy, whatever. Um, but the point is with green energy, and climate change alarmism becoming such a big part of the left, that very much goes along with social democracy. That again, there's this emergency that's going to kill us and we have to 
give all of our money to these um, green energy companies that are heavily invested in by the same Wall Street fucking ghouls who have destroyed the economy to enrich themselves and will do so again. Um, And so they're all in on green energy because they know that the narrative of the climate change bomb going off in eight years uh, is very much implanted in people's heads and they're going to ride that. And they know that there's endless money in it. Um, You know, the government's going to keep pumping money into green energy stuff because AOC is out there every day, you know, talking about how we're all going to die from the climate in eight years. Um, And the government's got all the money in the world. So it actually benefits these Wall Street owned green energy companies to have all of this happen. So they love social democracy because so much of social democracy now is again about this Green New Deal thing. So it's just going to make Wall Street wealthier. Um, and then they're going to use that money to, you know, control the political system like they always have. So, you know, it's a classic social democracy bullshit maneuver of seeming radical, seeming to care about the future, um, but really just being focused on this alarmism in the present, um, which only strengthens the status quo. Okay. Um, And so getting back to what I was saying earlier about social democracy, there's this idea that Bernie won the battle of ideas. I think he said that at various points, that we have won the battle of ideas. We have shifted uh, the discourse, shifted the argument left. Uh, The future belongs to us, blah, blah, blah. And so he's talking about how he won the battle of ideas, even though he lost to fucking Joe Biden, who doesn't believe in any of Bernie Sanders' ideas at all. Um, So how can you say we won the battle of ideas if you lost Joe Biden, who is supposed to be your sworn class enemy? All Joe Biden's done his whole career is give the fucking credit card companies everything they want. Um, He's more well known for that than really anything. Um, So his whole career was, you know, the crime bill in 1994, which was horrible, um, giving the credit card companies everything they wanted because a lot of them are based in his home state of Delaware. uh, And then just being Obama's friend for eight years. Um, and we're supposed to act like we won the battle of ideas now that he's in charge. Uh, I don't think so. Um, and so social democracy really ensures that the idea of communism will keep losing forever because it gives losing a good conscience. Again, winning the battle of ideas, the idea that we've, you know, introduced this or that policy, like the green new deal, Medicare for all, um, into more, common discourse and that people are talking about it or aware of it now. Um, And so this creates the illusion within the mass of people or within workers of some kind of progressive leftward, maybe even communist shift that's going forward. And it offers bourgeois liberals a safe way to flirt with radicalism or to like vampirically siphon, you know, energy or political capital um, from social democracy in the way I was describing earlier with how these green new deal, these, you know, green energy companies are owned by wall street or heavily invested in by wall street. Um, and that gives them, you know, a way to perpetuate themselves, to be, to insinuate themselves within sort of the progressive movement. So they can feel like they're part of this, you know, 
radical future that's happening or something. So uh, I think to sum it up, social democracy is basically about raising awareness at the end of the day. It's not about getting results. It's not about long-term planning. It's not about, it's not about theoretical understanding, which has to be a part of any kind of Marxist or communist activity. Um, it's about winning the battle of ideas, which is not a real thing. <laughs> a battle of, like, what the fuck is a battle of ideas? Ideas don't battle. People battle. Um, and there's no, way to, there's no way to tell if you've won the battle of ideas. Like, who decides, okay, this idea has won now. Like, it's vague and makes no sense, but I think it's intentionally meant to be that way. Um, so, yeah. It's about this vague bullshit idea of winning the battle of ideas. It's about moving the conversation left. It's about pushing the Democrats left. And so the Democratic Party has this kind of unearned moral high ground uh, over the Republicans because of their history of social democracy. The New Deal period, of course, as I was describing earlier. Um, and so without that, then the Democrats would be exposed for the capitalist fucking villains and ghouls that they are. Um, and of course, you know, the social democracy of the New Deal period, roughly you know, 1932 up until the mid-1970s, when things transitioned to what we call neoliberalism. Um, without, so we know where social democracy leads. It led in the past to the creation of neoliberalism, which we're still dealing with. Um, there was some, you know, hysterical nonsense when Biden passed the COVID relief bill about how Biden, <laughs> Biden's aggressive government spending was marking the end of, you know, decades of neoliberalism. Um, but that's of course not true. So we know, and neoliberalism will probably never end. Who knows? Um, and so if we revert back to social democracy, maybe we have that for a f decade or two where there are some real government, universal government programs. So, you know, like the New Deal had social security, it had the GI Bill, which wasn't really universal, but it was, it was cool. Um, although not that cool because it just sort of strengthened the middle class, which is the enemy of revolution. Um, and so there were lots of universal programs in the social democracy of the New Deal. Um, and so maybe we could have that again in some new period of social democracy that I guess AOC and people like that want to usher in. Um, but again, that's just going to be folded into the system of neoliberal capitalism um, and perpetuate it and help it reproduce itself because that's what social democracy does. Okay, I hope I have adequately addressed the question of why social democracy uh, sucks ass. Okay, uh, some other topics. Um, Luca, who follows me on Twitter, very nice guy, he's been asking me for a while to talk about a tweet I did a while ago um, where I said, Lana Del Rey is fine. She's like, if Kate, Katy Perry wasn't a liberal fascist. Um, so I, some people wanted some um, expanded thoughts on that. I made this, <laughs> made this tweet a while ago, so I don't necessarily remember what the fuck it means. And I don't I'll, I always know what uh, the tweets mean when I say them, even in the moment. Um, I'm kind of like the Joker, just a dog chasing cars. Well, do I really, do I really seem like a guy with a plan? Um, 
But I think what Lana Del Rey is fine, she's like, if Katy Perry wasn't a liberal fascist, means is Katy Perry is a liberal fascist in the sense of, you know, bourgeois feminism, empowerment of women, seeming like some kind of radical new thing, but it's very, you know, safe and very much within the status quo. So it's, when I say liberal fascist, I basically mean neoliberal. I think neoliberalism is sort of fascist. I had a podcast about neoliberalism a while ago um, where I sort of explain how it's a fascist tendency. So you can check that out in the archives, I guess. Um, So Katy Perry is neoliberal. Lana Del Rey, I guess, isn't neoliberal. Um, And also Katy Perry, she's very much like changing her deal a lot. Not that, not that I follow Katy Perry closely. Not that anyone has in the last bunch of years. She's very like early 2010s shit. Um, but I remember this New York Times thing like uh, a bunch of years ago at this point where she like talked about how she totally changed her um, approach, her look, her sound, everything. Because she's like, oh, I'm, it's a journey of self-discovery. I don't really know who I am. I'm trying to learn. I remember her saying that, like, I'm, I'm open to suggestions, I'm trying to learn and grow as an artist, blah, 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 all of this. Um, and Lana Del Rey, as far as I can tell, she's basically been the same all along. Like, I, her albums are slightly different, but her sound is the same. Her, her look has gotten a little different over the years, but her, like, attitude is very much the same. Um, and if anything, it's like, like she's digging her heels in and being like, no, I'm not going to be open or change or grow or hear suggestions or whatever. She's going against all of that shit. Um, And so I guess as things have gotten even more progressive, neoliberal over the last few years and so on, she's kind of standing against that and saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Whereas Katy Perry was very much going along with all of that and kind of in the forefront of it. And she's basically gone now like nobody gives a fuck about Katy perry um whereas lana del rey i feel like she's getting more popular now um even with some ostensibly straight men um (laughs) so yeah i think lana del rey is okay i'm not like a big fan of her or anything um i listened to her a few of her songs when i did my elvis podcast because i wanted to talk about some parallels between her and elvis um but yeah, I think she doesn't change, which is cool. And she's very much not neoliberal, and Katy Perry was. Um, so I think that's sort of my commentary on that tweet from, I think that tweet was in like April. Um, okay, another tweet I wanted to talk about, also an old one, where I say, someone sent this to me and they wanted me to talk about it. Um, Liberals have no culture other than compliance culture. That's what culture has been turned into. And now in COVID world, it has become totalizing. Compliance, compliance for its own sake now has a permanent justification of compliance for safety. It's always been nihilistic and still is. So yeah, um, I think liberal politics, liberal culture, liberal norms, and so on has very much been hegemonic or predominant for many years now. Um, with the glaring glaring exception of Trump, of course. Um, Trump opposed all of that, and that's what made him popular. And so that shows how this liberal hegemony um, is everywhere, but it's also very weak because it took a retard like Trump 
to just like point to it and be like, this shit sucks. And everyone was like, yeah, he's right. Um, so it's, you know, liberal hegemony is a paper tiger, I would say. So as I say, liberals have no culture other than compliance culture. That's what all culture has been turned into. And now in COVID world, it's total. COVID world is all about compliance culture. Wear a fucking mask anytime you go anywhere. Take these crazy vaccines that might kill you. Who the fuck knows? Um, You know, keep your mask on forever. Liberals want it to never end. Um, And if they have their way, we're going to be wearing masks forever. And you're going to have to get a vaccine booster every year. Um, And as news stories continue to come out about side effects from the vaccines, they're not going to cover those stories because that threatens their narrative and, you know, on and on and on. So I think compliance for its own sake um, is nihilistic because what are you complying to? Who are you complying for? What are you trying to achieve by your compliance? And the answer is fucking nothing. Just following the rules to follow them because that's just what people do. And so there's no real reason behind it. There's no real substance behind it. They cite science. They cite norms and experts and this and that. But it's all bullshit because any science you can – you can't find science to back this shit up because it's all so new. <laughs> science has to be around for a while to establish something. And the science of like, oh, you have to wear a mask. That will stop the spread, blah, blah, blah. It's not really known. And, you know – do we still need to be wearing them? What situations do we need to be wearing them in? All kinds of thing, things like this. Science, expertise, they have nothing to offer um, in this regard. So yeah, all anyone knows how to do is comply, be compliant, do what you're told. And now there's some you know gloss of like, oh, it's for your safety. And so I don't really see an end to it. Um, kind of obvious. So yeah, that's another thing. Okay, a few other things I wanted to talk about because I asked people um, for their ideas tonight. And my friend Eric replied and said, you got to talk about John Cazell. Um, Eric is a very proud member of the city of Revia, Massachusetts. And he's very proud of John Cazell, um, who's one of the great fucking artists in American history. Uh, so John Cazale, Cazale, um, was born in Revere, Massachusetts. Um, not a city known for its culture or like refinement or sophistication or artistry. It's known for, you know, having like very, like the most like stereotypical Boston guy who's like super angry all the time and not super smart, you know, just drunk, um, playing Kino, smoking Pall Mall cigarettes, you know, um, those kinds of guys. Just talking about the fucking Red Sox and not much else. Um, that's Revere. And that's where John Cazale's from. Um, and he's considered like this amazing artist in American history. So it's very interesting that he came from Revere. But I think there are people from Revere who are very, <laughs> very sensitive artists. Um, and that's, I think, one of the interesting dialectical things about Massachusetts is that it does have all these aggressive, kind of retarded people, let's be honest. Um, but side by side with, you know, Harvard and MIT and like all of these amazing uh, schools and all of these super intellectuals, um, 
and the intellectual types are not just confined to like those schools or to Cambridge or whatever. They're all over the place. And I guess everywhere is like this, but in Massachusetts, it's like more intense because it's really small and it's a really old place. So there's a lot of character there. Um, and there's, there's a very like real sense of place to it. Um, so John Cazell, he was only in five movies. Yeah. His whole career over a seven year period, so five movies in seven years. And they were all nominated for the Academy Award for best picture. So the Godfather, the conversation, Godfather part two, dog day afternoon and the deer hunter. And then he got lung cancer and died in, um, 1978. Um, so it says on Wikipedia that he got lung cancer likely related to his history of chain smoking. Um, which I guess if you're making like five all time classic movies in seven years, that's going to be stressful. And so you're going to chain smoke a lot. So as a great fucking artist, you got to chain smoke, but it'll kill you, but that's probably fine because who needs to live for that long anyway? Um, so he, is probably the most memorable thing in all of these movies. Um, he plays Fredo, of course, in The Godfather. Great fucking character. Fredo's like the weak brother, the one who's sort of a failure and a screw-up and all that. And he tries to prove himself as being better than that. And he's very, um, very sensitive and very insecure, um, which I guess is kind of a Massachusetts thing or a Boston thing or even a Revere thing is that people don't take you seriously. Um, I, th I think that's something that John Cazale had to struggle against his whole life, is that I guess because of where he was from, he was very humble origin, and he tried to live this very serious life as an artist. Um, I assume people didn't take him seriously for you know his whole time. Um, and he really brought that to the role of Fredo, and so that's one of the reasons it's such a memorable, authentic performance. Um, Dog Day Afternoon, of course, he plays um, the gay lover of Al Pacino. Um, and so that's a very uh, intense movie. Um, and yeah, he's very much in transition or he's very much uncertain. So he captures this kind of uncertainty in his roles. Like he's barely there. He's very much overlooked, but so he's this very negative presence in a way, but negativity is the most memorable and substantial thing really. Um, so it's Hegel or Hegelians talk about the defining negation, how negation defines everything. And I think John Cazale really, um, embodies that. So we love John Cazale over here at the daily dialectic. That's for sure. Okay, well, that's about an hour, so I think that's about enough. Um, excuse me. I'll do another one of these soon. Um, thanks for listening, and make sure to get my two books. Um, you can find them on my Twitter page. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>